Kyle Snar is one of the co-founders behind Cantonment, a new accessories line where kerchiefs serve as their flagship product. We talk about his love of storytelling and how his petrolhead father shaped his film school application, where he ended up alongside the Napoleon Dynamite crew. Years later, after much success in the marketing sphere building award-winning websites for the very car brands that influenced Standard H, Kyle was plucked and became the head of marketing for Gear Patrol. Kyle and I are nothing if not birds of a feather as we both are product guys through and through. Cars, gadgets, knives, watches. We love it all and obsess over the details. Being a product guy is what led Kyle to launch Contonement with two friends which started as a side project slash hobby four years ago only to launch at the beginning of COVID-19. It's times like these that allow creativity to shine and what I love about Contonement is their team-driven approach to the business from day one and I think you'll agree. We close out the show with why the Land Rover Defender is so drooled over, and also what might make its way into Kyle's dream garage. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Yeah. Well, it's good to see you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I was just yeah. listening to your latest, your latest episode on my run today, feeling quite intimidated. Oh, no. <laughs> Who was it? Oh, oh, with Brian? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just that he's like, he's got such a storied, you know, a cool history in the space. So, yeah. And you are seeing me in my daughter's closet, by the way, just because it's the most serene, quiet place in the house because I have four kids. What are their, what are their ages? My oldest is 17, just uh, kind of 17. And then I have a, so she's, you know, learning to drive and stuff like that. Um, I have a son who's 14, a daughter who's 12, and a daughter who's 8. Oh, so your hands are full. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's... And wait, and I'm sorry, did you say they're all daughters? No, no, I have a... My my second oldest is a boy. Okay, okay. I was going to say, there's got to be some sort of testosterone eventually at some point to balance it out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's, he's interesting... He's an interesting scenario surrounded by women most of the time. So I have to be like a, like a dad and a brother to him, you know? Yeah, for sure. But we're, we're good buds. We're really good friends. So. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. Mr. Kyle Snar, thank you for joining the podcast. I really appreciate you doing the show. Um, I am officially a paid subscriber of Zoom, so <laughs> we're not capped to 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Big fan of the big fan of the pod, man. Thank you very much. Um, so, for the listeners, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so um, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. My parents are from the Salt Lake Valley, and cool. was raised in Salt Lake City till the age of seven, when my dad got a job transfer to New York, and I grew up in the Hudson River Valley, about an hour north of New York City. That's kind of halfway between West Point and New Paltz, New York. So just up on the west side of the Hudson, um, you know, with a couple of, you know, auto enthusiast parents in a kind of a oh, cool, cool place to go take a Sunday afternoon drive and um, lived out here until I went uh, out west for school. Okay, sweet. So I'm familiar with Blue Hill the restaurant in West Village and they have the farm, right? That's up that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, there's a ton of interesting little places up, up there. I grew up right near, um, a really famous, um, modern art museum called, um, Storm King 
massive modern art sculptures I could ride there on my bike as a kid from my house. That's kind of where the vicinity was where I grew up. Oh, cool. And what, uh, what was your dad doing back then that he got transferred? He was working in business finance for a medical manufacturing company and then moved over to working in finance for the, the insurance company Prudential at their corporate headquarters. So he was a commuter. So he would you know, wake up early in the morning, commute down to the corporate headquarters, which were located down in New York, New Jersey at the time. And then now it was like an hour plus drive and then would come on back. And so, and so he had like kind of really cool cars when I was a little kid. And then when I became a little bit older and he was commuting, he went to more kind of sensible and like, you know, fuel efficient cars. And then when I got a little bit older, he actually uh, bought his own business that was a little closer to home. So he got some cooler cars back in, back in the house. Cool. What was, uh, what was your favorite of his in the bunch as a kid? Yeah. So he, um, he lived a couple years in Germany and came back a bit of a, a Beamer file, right? So we had a slew of 2002s when I was a little little kid, um, a, a TII, a Bavaria, a couple other 2002s, yeah. and then kind of went into more kind of sensible cars for a little while there. But then, you know, we also had some really random ones. Like we had um, a Saab and a Volvo, but we also had a couple of Renault Le Cars. You know these guys, these little Le Cars? Yeah. We had an orange one for a little bit, and it was just kind of a funny little interesting cars throughout most of my uh, childhood. But then he got another 2002 when I was in high school, uh, 76 cherry red. And then he swapped that right as I was about to go to out to college. He swapped it for a, um, an 88 M5 sedan. Yeah, which is an awesome car to, to kind of teach me and, you know, kind of educate me on my automotive tastes as a kid, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. What were, uh, what were the subjects you were kind of drawn to in school as a kid? Yeah. Um, when I was little, I thought I wanted, I, I, I was going to be one of two things when I grew up. I was either gonna, going to design vehicles like cars and jets. I was just way into like, I had like this like Crayola drafting table that I would just draw cars on all day long. Amazing. My parents got me or I thought I was going to be a film director. I was either going to like design cars or I was going to be directing film. And so I thought I was going to be in math and like taking all these mathematical classes to kind of be an engineer. And then I realized real quick that I'm not that great at math, which is hysterical because my whole, my, my dad is a numbers guy and his dad's a mathematician. And I was just like, that was not my thing. Yeah. But um, I was very lucky that in high school, I had an amazing photography teacher and I took his class. And I'm still good friends with him to this day and really got into photography and I had an amazing English teacher and she got me into to writing short, short stories. And so, you know, it, it just started putting stories um, on paper, putting stories on film, and really fell in love with storytelling. And it was great. He, uh, my, my photography teacher got me a job at a local camera shop in town, right. which is a place where you could, you know, develop film or buy cameras. And I, I worked there my entire high school kind of time frame. I never had to work at like McDonald's or any fast food. I worked at a camera shop and, you know, so I was selling cameras to people, developing film. And the a lot of the um, film students from New Paltz um, would come down and get their movie film developed at this little camera shop. And I just thought they were like the coolest people on the planet. And I was just like, I got off of like the car design boat and like full on into like, I want to make movies and I want to be like these, these film students. So that's oh, what wow. I ended up ma majoring in in college was I 
I got into the film school at Brigham Young University. Oh, sure. BYU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, um, what were kind of the cameras you were shooting with back then? Um, I mean, honestly, it's one of the cameras that we actually have featured on this new brand that we've just developed. But, but I, I, I bought from that camera shop a Pentax K1000, you know, little manual advance. Um, everything was pretty manual at the time. But um, yeah, I shot tons of, of, you know, film on that and black and white film that I developed myself in school. And yeah, I shot a ton of that. And then, you know, I was able to pick up like a Super 8 camera and some old movie cameras that are tons of fun. Those are fun to have as a kind of, you know, show pieces from a yeah. past life. <laughs> well, uh, music's been coming up a lot lately in my chats. So what, uh, what, was, what was coming through the speakers of the 2002 and the, and the 88 Beamer and things like that? Uh, back then, I was an REM kid. Like, it was just everything. Um, I just really loved their music and and it was kind of like an oddball you know being in kind of upstate New York ish you know we were about an hour from the city so my buddies and I you know we were the type of kids who would like save up our money and buy train tickets to go down to Grand Central and like run down to Soho and like dive into like bins of imports and b-sides and find all this like cool like music from you know, wherever, a lot of alternative music at the time, I guess. Funny, um, the, the, the later in school, the gal I ended up getting married to, she introduced me to more of kind of the, 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 the UK bands like Blur and James and stuff like that. And so oh, when yeah. we were yeah, first together, we'd come back and visit my parents in New York and we'd do the same thing, go down to Soho and go dump, uh, go dive in the, the bins of imports and, and B-sides for sure. Yeah. James, that's a, that's a band I haven't thought of in ages. Great yeah. band. Seen them live, danced with them. They came down to the audience, danced with us. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. That's a, man, what a, what a blast from the past. That's amazing. That's so good. Um, so you went to BYU and you studied film. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. You know, I, I got into film school um, with a student film that I made, um, we had to shoot it on uh, with no sound, this short little one minute video. And so my buddy at the time, he had a Delta 88 that we called the Love Machine, two bench seats, right? And the first time I ever borrowed it from him, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm going to fill it up for him. I, I remember pulling it into the gas station and like took me like solid 10 minutes to find that the gas you know, the gas cap was under the license plate, you know? So it was like, I pull in the one side and like, look, and like, oh, it must be on the other side. Pull out, pull back in the other way and look, walk around. I'm like, dang, where's this thing? And finally found that it was under the, under the, you know, under the, the license plate in the back, um, which became the premise of my kind of my film that I shot to get accepted into film school. Oh, amazing. Huge car. And then like, cannot you know, run out of gas, pull up to the gas station and can't figure out what to do. The, the final frame of the, the little video was zooming in on the, the, uh, the license plate and then fade to black, you know, just that's where it's hidden. That got me in and I was really kind of trying to focus on being a screenwriting kind of emphasis there. Sure. And it was about halfway through film school when I kind of realized I was not a huge fan of writing full-length feature stuff and I really kind of loved shorter narratives and at what was happening at the time like industry-wise is two two big things happened um 
both very kind of automotive related. Um, the agency Arnold out of Boston got the VW account and they started shooting these amazingly cinematic TV spots that, that yeah. were starting to run before movies. And I just remember sitting in the dark theater and then showing this amazing commercial for at the time was a Volkswagen Cabrio, I think. And it was, um, it was this beautiful spot that's known as Pink Moon because they play a song by Nick Drake called Pink Moon. Super cinematic and just so engrossing and awesome. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is where my, my, my skills of like, my love of cars and my love of kind of more shorter storytelling narratives, this, this is what I should be doing. I should be in advertising. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the other thing that happened right around then is, um, the agency Fallon out of Minneapolis were, was working with BMW and released a series. I don't know if you remember this, a series of short shorts. Yeah. Higher series. That was kind of like the, that big first example of like branded content out there, high quality, super high quality branded content. And that just like literally blew my mind and just like, like, like really twisted everything about how um, I felt um, I could actually put my passions and my skills into one place. And so what I did is I didn't want to change my major. I loved being a film major, but I, I started minoring in, in communications and wanted to get into as many advertising classes as I could. So I went and kind of just camped out in front of the professors for the, all the advertising classes that normally you'd have to like actually like test to get in or like have a portfolio and, and like kind of like get, win a place inside these classes. But I just like camped out in front of these professors rooms and just did everything I could to befriend them, make them laugh, make them smile, brighten their day. And then just kind of weaseled my way into the next semester's worth of classes by just kind of becoming, I don't know, not annoying, but by always omnipresent in these people's like hallways. Sure. And I got to minor in advertising essentially. And yeah, it was a, it was a great, um, it was a great place to, to go to school. I, I, I went to school with the same crew of, of guys and gals who worked on Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, wow. The director, he shot my senior piece, which was a spot for um, the Yamaha Vino, which was my senior piece that, uh, and he shot that for me. Um, I went to school with, you know, John Heater, who plays, you know, Napoleon. He was in my Photoshop class and fun time to be going to to film school for sure. Sure. Yeah. So when you got out of school, what was your first job? Yeah, it was interesting, you know, so it was... um, I started interviewing in New York. I started interviewing in San Francisco and my senior year, I befriended a couple of graphic designers and we started working on some pieces together where, you know, they were learning motion graphics and I was a film student. And I mean, it was kind of interesting the way I met these guys is we were at the, we were all went to um, a mutual friends going away party at a restaurant and we're sitting there and there's a guy sitting across the table and I see him playing around with his keys, his car keys. And it kind of flops over and the fob on the set of car keys was an M3. Oh, sweet. And I was just like, dude, nice car. And so what year is this? This was around 2001. So I graduated in 2002. Right after that, that party, we went to the parking lot and he, and you know, he's, he's got a four door E36 looks amazing. And we just became 
instant pals, you know? And so we started working on projects with each other our senior year where, you know, you know he would help lay out stuff for my advertising portfolio and I'd help shoot stuff for his motion graphics classes. About a year after graduation, as I'm interviewing in New York and interviewing in San Francisco, um, he had a huge client and had a partner who had another client and all of a sudden they needed help. They needed someone to come in and write copy and they needed someone to to concept and direct motion graphics pieces. And so I just started working with them. And then about a year after that, we started doing a ton of flash animation at the time. And um, we were doing it in a way that no one else out there was doing. Um, we were creating these sequences of, of stills and putting them into flash that created essentially a, a, a motion effect. And it was starting to get us onto the radar of multiple advertising agencies in big cities. Oh, Just wow. like, you know, at the time there was four of us in 800 square foot space in Salt Lake City, okay. Utah, pretty much, you know, way off the radar, but we started doing these, these really cool websites that were winning awards and, and starting to like pick up steam and, and the phone started ringing. And this little agency um, is called Struck. It's still in Salt Lake. Um, and I remember the day the phone started ringing and everyone, the four of us would just kind of fumble over who would try and answer the phone. And it was like so unprofessional. I was like, I was mortified <laughs> by how unprofessional it seemed. And so one day I was just like, guys, when the phone rings, I will answer it. If it's for you, I will transfer it. And that one day's decision literally changed the course of my career, much like, you know, spotting this dude's M3 Right. Fob. right. That day I became this little agency's first, well, first receptionist for one thing, but right. also became the first account guy, the first new biz guy, the first voice that people would hear when they called. And I, and I, and I would really try hard to convert these people into a client of ours. What I learned really quick is I was a better writer of proposals than I was of advertising. I switched my my kind of my brain into going like maybe I just need to be focused on generating business for this agency and so I switched to the director of new business role and over the course of the next 10 years we grew that space that's that agency from an 800 square foot space with four guys to four offices and 80 people wow it was a wild ride because we rode that whole flash microsite craze and I got to work for amazing clients we got to, got to work, do great work for a lot of automotive brands, which I was just way into and win business for BMW and Mini and Volkswagen and GM and Porsche and just do these really amazing sites that were out there winning awards and putting this on the map and the phone just kept on ringing. And so it was just this crazy wild ride through flash into social media, into mobile design and just watching that whole entire um, category of digital agency not be a thing when we started and become the thing when when I when I eventually left that agency. Yeah, sure. So, how did you wind up in New York then? Yeah, um, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I had been at Struck uh, for ten years, and I remember the week that I turned ten, which is a long time for advertising world. Um, I had never ever looked for another job, but that same that week I had turned ten, I, I got three different different agencies reached out to me about asking if I was looking to go anywhere else, and I hadn't even thought about it. And I said no to all three, but 
that planted a weird little seed, you know, of just like, maybe I need to challenge myself. Maybe I need to go somewhere else. Maybe I need to see what else I'm good at. Um, um, I, that, that was, that was just the planting of the seed. I didn't do anything about it. Uh, six months later, I, I, uh, was heading off to, you know, our little Christmas break and I saw, you know, my, my phone had a message and it was flashing. And so I, I picked it up and listened to it and it was a recruiter from a, an agency, actually a for, an agency that we had formerly worked with uh, an Omnicom agency called tribal worldwide out of New York city and say it saying, Hey, I'm, I'm looking for a director of new business for this agency. And I was just like, Oh boy. And I hung up the phone and went on, you know, Christmas break and didn't think about it, came back and, um, you know, debated whether I should call him back, but I thought I, I should always just hear what they have to say. And, um, sure enough, they were looking at me to come and run new business for tribal worldwide, um, for North America. And I, um, you know, they, they gave me an offer. I said, no, they gave me another offer. I said, no. And they gave me a third offer and I had to say yes. Did yeah, the price kept going up? <laughs> it was a great offer. Um, so at that point, you know, my wife and I, we had four kids. Yeah. I was going to say our family of four from Salt Lake city to New York. Um, and now I, I live, I've, we moved to a place just outside the city and I've lived here for the last almost six years. Cool. So then you were at, um, I'm sorry, you said it was called tribal. Correct. What took you away from tribal? Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, I landed in New York in about a week after being here, I have got an email from Pinterest. And so Pinterest was an app that I love and I curate stuff on it pretty much daily. I, I, and they were really interested in one of my boards, um, which was my camping inspiration board. And they asked if I, if they would, could spotlight me on their corporate blog. Wow. And I was like, sure. So I, I, you know, they did a little questionnaire with me and I kind of talked about my, my love of the outdoors. Um, and the day that that went live, it was funny because I mentioned they, one of the questions they asked is where do you find your your most pins. And, and I actually at the time found almost all my pins on an app called Flipboard, which I also loved. Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And I just said, you know, I find almost all my pins on Flipboard. And it's funny because Pinterest and Flipboard at the time were pretty competitive with one another. And so I never thought they'd even publish it, but sure enough, they published that line verbatim on the Pinterest corporate blog. And the day that that went live, someone at Flipboard got like a Google alert or something. And it's like, well, who was mentioning Flipboard positively on the Pinterest corporate blog. And so they right. called me on my, they called me in my office in New York and just said, who are you? And I was like, oh, this is who I am. Yes. I love Pinterest. I also use Flipboard every day and like religious about it. And uh, about a year later, they, they offered me a job Flipboard to come aboard and be um, what they call the, the head of brand communication, which is really to start arming their sales team better tools in market and telling the flipboard story in a better way to advertisers. And that was amazing. So it was kind of funny, this, this funny little moment I had with Pinterest ended up getting me hired at one of their competitors. Um, and so I, I worked at, at, at flipboard for uh, two years in the process. I got to know a ton of amazing publishers out there. I met, um, and got to write a, an article for the guys at Gear Patrol through that job at Flipboard. I got to um, work really closely with the folks at Vox Media. And 
you know, it's just, it was a very kind of well-connected place to be in the media scene in New York. Um, after that, I got hired at uh, Vox Media and got to do the same thing kind of that I was doing at, at uh, Flipboard, but for just a much larger sales team. Like they have a national sales team and I was really loved working with that whole squad of folks where I'm going in and creating their go-to-market message, kind of telling like why advertisers should come and advertise with Vox Media and each of their amazing publications. So I got to work with the folks at Vox.com, at The Verge, at Eater, at SB Nation, all these amazing um, um, titles that they had, and then work and, and go hand in hand with all the sales team members and help them tell better stories in, in their pitches and get to know um, the story and tell it very authentically to their audience. And so that was a ton of fun. And then one day, you know, I'm at work and I get a text message from my friends at Gear Patrol and they just said, go look at the website on the, on the careers page. And that was it. <laughs> That's all the text said. And sure enough, there, there was a, you know, a, a position there that was, was crafted just for a guy like me. So I applied right. and, uh, what was that title? Poster was director of integrated marketing and ended up becoming a head of marketing position. So you already had buddies there. So they were, you know, hip to tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. I got a text one day for sure. And um, so, yeah, I spent the last two years at uh, Gear Patrol um, and, you know, just really, you know, grew to love the idea of product journalism. I'm, I'm a product guy. I, yeah. As you know, I love automotive um, I love automobiles. I love the outdoors. I love watches. And so it's just a really great place to kind of learn about each of those topics and how to cover them from a journalistic point of view, but also how to do amazing branded content around of the, those, those things. And, and where my role really was is how to activate enthusiasts for those topics. So what were some of the actions you were taking to do just that? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, and this is obviously pre COVID. But one of the big, th big things that we launched while I was there that became really cool and really fun to work on was um, our events, you know, like people who are enthusiastic about products, they love to get together with other enthusiasts, obviously. So we launched a really great series of reader events that were kind of like, either um, evening activations or daytime, like active lifestyle sort of events. So whether that was getting together and having a watch meetup at the Phillips auction house, which was really right. cool, or yeah. was, you know, meeting at a park in Brooklyn and going on a, on a guided run and then doing a guided stretch afterward. Um, so those were, those were really cool. We, we kind of called those activations are in the field activations. And then my, probably my favorite and, and like kind of the biggest thing I helped to do while at gear patrol was launched their first two-day event, which was a conference that we called Stocked, um, a product culture conference. Cool. So that one, we partnered with um, um, with the the New York Car Club, the Manhattan Car Club. Excuse me, it's the Classic Car Club of Manhattan. Let me just get that I, right. We put on a two-day event there, where the, like kind of day one was more for I would say industry folks. Um, product marketers, product designers, reporters, and enthusiasts to get together, talk to, uh, or hear from, I should say, our journalists at the time, as well as the different um, influencers and like kind of more 
kind of decisions makers at a series of brands and just kind of really dive into how those decisions are made, how things are marketed, why things brand like products are called what they're called and kind of learning about that backstory and, and the inception of some of those great products out there. And then day two, it was really cool. We kind of changed the floor plan and brought in these kind of not really booths, but kind of stations where we curated a handful of like about 20 different amazing brands to come in and, you know, just invite anyone who wanted to come in off the street to come in and learn about um, these different products and touch and feel and, and um, test as well as purchase products. And it was just a massively fun um, endeavor that taught me a ton about how to activate that an enthusiast audience. That's really cool. So we're, because it was two days though, if people were coming in, was that on their own dime or were you guys paying for hotels for these people or like, how was that working? Most people were paying to come in. I was going to say, cause I could see it being feasible either way, you know? Yeah, no, we, uh, yeah. People flew from California and Florida and drove yeah. from all over the place to come and meet for this event. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you were at gear patrol for two years and just recently you, uh, launched contonement. Correct. So, so let's talk about this and, and, and how that all began. Yeah. So it, it was interesting. Um, it, it, it actually did begin a bit, um, from when I was a little kid growing up in Hudson Valley, I had a couple buddies who we would, do that kind of bin diving in Soho with um, when we weren't doing that. We were oftentimes backpacking on the Appalachian Trail and spending our summers on the Sweet. nearby AT, you know? Yeah. Um, I've been friends with these guys since a little kid. And when I was at Flipboard, I was, you know, hoofing it from Grand Central down to their offices in near Madison Square Park every day. And um, one day my buddy, who I grew up with, you know, he called me and he's, he's a product guy. His name's Matt Hine. And he, he is um, a leather worker and a woodworker and also spends his days um, creating products for other companies at the agency he works for. And he called me up and he just said, Hey, I, I really want to do a product of my own. And I would like to do that with you. Do you, do you have any ideas? And, and literally I'm on the phone. It's like the middle of summer and I'm, I'm hoofing it. To, to 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 work and I'm just sweating profusely <laughs> and at the time I was like starting to carry a bandana with me to kind of like either a kind of mop my brow a little bit or b I would often tie it around my neck to protect my collar from getting all sweaty if I had to wear a collar, yeah. collared shirt that day and I was like and, and he said to me I really want to do my own product I, want, I need it to be a soft good but I don't want it to have to carry sizes like I don't want a small an extra small to an x to an xl of inventory. And I was just like, dude, do you know what I really am looking for? I'm looking for like the perfect size bandana because a bandana is, is awesome to tie around your neck. Um, it's, it doesn't fit miraculously well in a pocket. It's kind of big. It's kind of bunchy. A handkerchief is super handy. Um, it fits in your pocket and you can kind of mop your brow, but you can't do much else. You can't tie it around your neck. You can't use it for many other purposes. I need that perfectly sized tool cloth that is not as big as a bandana, which is typically 20 inches by 20 inches or, or bigger, but not as small as a handkerchief, which is typically around 13 by 13. It's like a handkerchief or pocket square. So I need something in between. And he's like, dude, let's just start figuring out. So that was, you know, that was like four years ago that we started iterating on different fabric sizes 
And so he would just send me samples of, of different fabrics. Um, so we tried all these different types of materials, different um, stitching on the edges and different sizes. But we had figured out that the, the ideal size, um, we figured out what that was. And for us, we, we, we think it's 18 and a half by 18 and a half is really the perfect sized cloth. And it slides like right in your back pocket without bunching up or getting kind of too bulky. And we found out that definitely the material was 100% cotton. Absorbent, soft, but really durable. Right. Um, my buddy Matt had reached out to another friend that we grew up with who, his name is Kenny Ellsworth, and he's an amazing architect down in Atlanta. And he um, he is like really interested in the product too. And so he had just for fun, like designed some amazing sketches of some products um, and sent them our way. And so, you know, right around the beginning of quarantine here in New York, which is, it was a scary time. And we all of a sudden, all of us found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands. I remember just calling Matt and saying, dude, like we have this product. We know the size, we know the material, we have some cool designs. How long would it take for us to actually get this going? He's like, yeah. we could probably have, we could probably have product in six weeks. I'm like, dude, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And so yeah, we, we pulled the trigger. We took these things off the shelf that had been backburnered for a long time. Um, we quickly uh, took and, and resurrected um, this brand that I had concepted a couple years ago and, and applied it to these products. And yeah, we launched about a month and a week ago and right. it's going great. So I'm yeah. probably, I don't know, I'm a pretty new to the entrepreneurial space, which is funny for a podcast, which is focused on that. But right. um, yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. And, and the brand is called Contonement. So that is a word that I, I, I fell upon because, you know, we all grew up in this town in upstate New York. It was called New Windsor. And New Windsor is actually, the, the town itself was a massive part of Revolutionary War history. Hmm. So it wasn't far from Washington's headquarters. Um, Knock the general General Knox. His his headquarters was a you know few streets from my house, and wow. a few streets from there was actually the last campsite of the Revolutionary Army. And it was a place that you know we used to go to when we were kids and see like reenactments of Revolutionary War battles. And they had like a blacksmith working blacksmith you know, shed on site. And that, that plot of land is called the New Windsor Contonement. And a contonement is a military style campsite. So when I was thinking about the name of this company and just trying to find something that would have meaning to us, you know, that, that, that little location was a place that we went to together as, as kids, you know, and on field trips or whatever. And it, it's a word that, you know, you don't hear too often, I think in everyday language. So it was pretty free of you know, other people using it at the time. And I just thought, you know, that, that we're, we love camping. We grew up in this, this area, the, let's just go with contonement. And we all just kind of said, yeah, that's, that's, that's the name of the company. And this product that we had developed, you know, it's not a bandana. It's, it's not, it's just smaller. It's a different product than a bandana and it's not a handkerchief. But, you know, as I started researching the, the roots of those words and things like that, we just kind of settled on kerchief. And that's what right. we call it. And that's what it is. It's, it is a kerchief, but it, we call it a kerchief, capital K also. And, you know, not only were we, did we grow up together, we were also in like the same scout troop. And so it was really fun to kind of, you know, with my, my buddy Matt being a leather worker, you know, he started fiddling around with leather and trying to find 
like a little way to kind of do a little neckerchief slide like you yeah, know, sure, we sure. had when we were in scouts and and he developed one out of leather that we really liked and as I started researching that a little bit I, I discovered that kerchief slides in England where they kind of were developed were called woggles and so we just kind of adopted that name for the name of this of this little strap that comes with your kerchief um, and you know we we started we really wanted to do it in leather and we started looking at um, the, the cost and we realized real quick as a for a startup leather would just be a little cost prohibitive but we were talking about like what would we do and I looked down at my watch and sure enough I was wearing a gray NATO at the time I was just like dude what if we just made it out of this material the nylon and we we he he really he went and bought Matt went and bought a, some bunch of NATO straps immediately and started cutting them up and and we started just using that as a as the material and sure enough it worked great and when we ran the, the costs it, it was awesome in terms of just making sure that it was affordable for a startup you know it was just a very fortuitous and all of these passions of ours started coming together so the other thing that was really interesting is that you know as i was using these products and just testing it over time I, I really started realizing that I, I needed to bring two with me to work. Like I really wanted like one to tie around my neck and maybe one to occasionally sneeze into or something like that. I didn't <laughs> want those to be the same one. Yeah, yeah. And so we thought, man, what if we just always sold them in pairs? What if we always sold you two kerchiefs? And, yeah. and, and we thought that that would be a great way to kind of up the value of the product also, but also have a fun kind of dual canvas to showcase some different, you know, product enthusiast like themes. Sure. And so um, we launched um, with three themes of, um, last month. We launched with an automotive theme, um, a watch theme, and a camera theme. Two kerchiefs in each kit or set, as we call them, and one woggle, which was really cool because when we folded up and, and kind of rolled up two kerchiefs together, the woggle strap that we created almost by accident perfectly fit around two to hold oh, them perfect. together. And that was a little happy accident. We had to do a little fine tuning for sure, but like a happy accident that kind of inspired the packaging, which is super minimalist and just a cardboard sleeve that's held together by the actual strap. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, 
please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Kyle. Yeah, I kind of want to get into this a little more granularly, uh, if that's all right. But um, so what is the structure of the business? There's there's you, there's Kenny, right? And then there's there's Matt. And so there's the three of you. What what are the roles exactly? Sure. Um, yeah. So we're all title wise, just for the time being, we're all co-founders. Um, Matt is really focused on product and operations. So his job is he's a product developer by trade. So he understands manufacturing processes. He understands speaking to the factories. He understands um, kind of like what we need to carry in terms of inventory and, and how to structure logistics and how to structure also fulfillment. So he's really focused on, on that. Uh, Kenny, as you know, a trained architect and, and you know, someone who went to design school, he's really focused on um, the brand as well as the graphics on both the product as, and as well as the packaging. And his job is really to kind of come up with amazing art and ideas that feel authentic to us. Um, and then I'm on the marketing side. And so my, my job has been, you know, finding the right software for our launch website, finding the right partners to go to market with, finding, um, telling our story in uh, social media, telling our story to uh, potential collaborators and things like that. So that's how we've kind of divvied up the roles in a small, you know, part-time startup scenario. Right. So is um, Kenny still working as an architect in Atlanta? Are you guys still separated? Yeah. So Matt is in Salt Lake City. Kenny is in Atlanta and I'm here in New York. And so this entire this entire company has been virtual from day one. Yeah, that's awesome. So how many iterations did you do exactly before you landed on the final? The 18 and a half? Totally. Um, we probably went through four sets of sizes and materials, um, mm-hmm. maybe five. But and, and that coupled with just buying all kinds of samples that are out there on the market as well and kind of seeing what people had out there and and like understanding what we liked what felt nice what felt right what was the right size what was just too dang big um and yeah so between four or five iterations and numerous you know samples that we collected over the years it it took a while to kind of figure out what that what that size would be but um once we found this the fabric was really was was the biggest win there. We, we were really lucky to find a cotton that is both like super soft, very supple in the way it feels, extremely durable, washes well, dries well, and very absorbent. And then also figuring out the stitching. So a lot of bandanas, they have kind of a rolled edge with just like a single stitch across it, which is, which is fine. I've, have awesome bandanas with that type of finishing on it yep. but a lot of handkerchiefs actually have like a surging on the side we we went and took that one step further and we did again kind of like reaching back to our scouting roots a little bit we did more of like what's called a marrowed edge yep. which is the kind of edging that you'll see on the side of a patch yep that's it's that's what I have on the sides of my patches. I have a marrowed edge on the standard H patch yeah so we used that on the edge of this and it gives it that really clean finish and that cool kind of bright pop of an alternating color. Yep. Yeah. And some pocket squares have a marrowed edge as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, of, of 
handkerchiefs and pocket squares have either a, a, a surged or, or marrowed edge. So what other fabrics did you guys explore prior to landing on 100% cotton? Yeah, so we had definitely, uh, and the initial idea was that we wanted to do something that was had a, a really interesting story to it. So we were looking at some bamboo fabrics that were um, naturally antimicrobial and also could be used um, with lenses and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and we, and we do like that. And, and fabrics is a cool way that we can see ourselves iterating on our, on our product over time for sure. But again, when we were like considering what it would cost to get out the gate with a product that we felt super confident in, in the quality and in the functionality, yeah. it just could not beat 100% cotton because it, right. it just came with so much, um, so much functionality at a, such a, such an affordable cost for us. How did you guys go about choosing the colors? Because they're, they're pretty vibrant, right? Um, and, and really distinct. So can you talk about the color choices? Absolutely. Yeah. And so this also grew a little bit out of the fact that we felt pretty passionately about having two in a, two in each set. What two allows you to do is it allows you to have a color that is one that might be a little bit more bold and a little bit more loud. And then one that's maybe a little bit more subdued or a little bit yeah. more user friendly. Um, we kind of like that idea of, of having one in each set that was more fun and vibrant and one that was a little more chill. <laughs> and sure. so the, the colors, you know, color, our color story was always something we wanted to focus on really, really strongly from day one. Um, I, had, I took a lot of inspiration from one of my favorite brands, which is Tobo Designs. At the same time, and, and this, this is something I learned a long time ago back in like my agency days when we were helping companies choose corporate colors for a rebrand or something like that, we learned really quick back then that color is like literally the most subjective thing when it comes to making a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, We learned way back when I was, you know, in a small agency when we were presenting logos, never present them in color, always present them in black and white because people will inevitably say, I like the green one. Right. And not look at the actual design. Right. So color is color is super subjective. And I think it's interesting as we are now in the process of designing more kerchiefs and making decisions about what themes to go after and what colors work with that theme color that, that those choices and are really, really important to us and really critical. And, um, you know, for us, we want to be bold. We want to be brave and have, um, some cool colors at the same time earlier this week, I ran a little informal poll, you know, on Instagram uh, asking folks to say, you know, if we were to produce more, like what colors would you get? And we had a, like a small handful of respondents and all of them said black and white. So it's interesting. And we're taking that data right now and we're internalizing it and trying to figure out, okay, so what does that mean? And how can we make that part of our color story without losing something that we feel passionate about, which is like having, um, making a statement, having a bold piece of, of, of accessory is part of your kit. Um, right. So, you know, we're looking at how, what we can do with that alternating color along that marrowed edge and, and stuff like that. So there's, but the, it's just interesting when you do take a poll, people are like, yeah, give me a black and white one. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a funny um, realization that you have to kind of come, come to grips with. So when did you guys realize, like, what was the moment that you just understood your product to be finished design wise? Like when, the, you know, what defined it as being done? 
Um, you know, when we were um, experimenting and working on the Woggle strap, it, it's like it's, it winds on itself and has a little kind of stud that you can fit through a little buttonhole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're sitting there and, and, and my partner, Matt, he's, like I said, he's a wood, a woodworker. He has a shop and he is oftentimes just covered in sawdust. And he was like, you know, what if we just put a little buttonhole on the corner of this kerchief? And that way we could, you could take the, the, the neckerchief slide and fold it around on itself and use it to hang a kerchief from your belt. Right. And we were like, oh my gosh, like that is such a cool use case, you know? Yeah. And so we, we had some samples made with the buttonhole in the corner, in one corner. And we were like, wow, this is, this is super cool. This is like a whole nut. This is a new product. This isn't a bandana. This is a different product. Right. And as we started using it, you know, I, we, we all kind of came to the same conclusion ourselves that one corner wasn't enough. We should put a buttonhole in the other three too. Right. And all of a sudden you infinitely like open up the use case for this product where you can sure. hang it uh, from multiple uh, touch points. You can actually take all four and pin them up together and put your little, the little stud on, on the woggle through all four buttonholes and get a little impromptu tote out of it. Yeah. Um, and that, that's great for like, you know, for me, if I take my kids to the beach, I can, and they're, they're always collecting shells. I now have a little pouch I can keep them in because instead of just kind of like manhandle them. And you don't get sand in your pocket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even when James Stacy was testing it, he was like, man, this is great for foraging. When I'm out on a walk and I'm like picking berries or something like that, I can, I can toss them in here. And so all of a sudden, when we saw that we had a product that was not a bandana, it was not a handkerchief, it was something that was completely new and it was iterated upon and riffed on in a way that pushed it into new possibilities of functionality we were like okay we we have something different it's been awesome for um retailers like um the team at worn and wound who saw the product and were just like yeah let's put it in the 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 store and the team at huckberry who saw the product and were like yes that's that's totally different let's put it in the store they recognized quickly that we were trying to tell a new story with a you know something that probably your dad or your grandpa and my dad and my grandpa always carried around with them. We have some, we have bringing that back into a man's or a woman's or anyone's everyday carry. What, uh, so where are they manufactured and how'd you guys go about finding manufacturing? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're really lucky. Um, so Matt, who I told you works for a product um, design agency, they about 10 years ago set up a team in China that created a kind of a very vetted um, group of factories, everything from printing to manufacturing to, um, our, you know, creating apparel or, or um, soft goods. And so he's, you know, he works with them every single day to create in, in his day job products for his, for his clients. But we were able to tap into that, you know, vetted like longstanding relationship and use it, for cantonment as well. So we know, you know, the, the factories that we are creating this in are factories that we know to be, you know, you know smart and, and clean and, you know, following all the right, you know, policies and procedures of being like a vetted solid factory with a 10 plus year relationship with those, with those places, which is really powerful and, and really great and, and feels gives us a lot of confidence and also, you know, that lasting relationship just benefits us so that we can, you know, he, you know, 
leverage a little bit of the buying power he's earned over the years there. So. Sure. Yeah, no, that's incredible. That's uh, super convenient. <laughs> come, they come from, they come from China wound up and packaged gold and ready to, ready to go for us. So soup to nuts, just done. Yeah. What are you guys doing about warehousing slash shipping fulfillment, all that? Well, um, right now it's being handled by hand. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Matt has four daughters that have packaged a few things for us over the last few weeks. So interns, he's got interns. Yes, he does. <laughs> and uh, so that's what's happening right now. Um, we're, when we start doing the volume that requires more fulfillment and things like that, we, we do have partners that we've done stuff in the past with that we'll turn to for that type of um, storage and fulfillment. Yeah, like third-party logistics or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Sweet. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to decide to launch during a pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so interesting, right? Like this, again, this was a product that we developed and thought about about four years ago. And it just so happens that, you know, when we found ourselves with ample time on our hands to launch this, that it coincided, you know, in, in not in a great way. And it's sad that, that there's a this massive pandemic going on, but, it, but it's also a time where people are looking for face coverings. And, you know, by no stretch of imagination is our product a medical grade face covering. That's not what it is. Yeah. But, you know, when I am out running in the morning or on a, a trail on my bike and I, I can't, you know, kind of self-distance myself if I'm on a tight trail and I'm passing someone really closely, this yeah. is a great product to have tied around my neck and quickly you know, as some, I see someone approaching. It's got enough give in it and enough stretch in it just to be able to pull it up quickly over my nose and be that respectful covering as I fly by someone on a trail. Um, I, I don't leave the, the home without it these days. Now it's just permanently tied around my neck and something that also is fun and it looks cool and, and speaks to my, um, you know, my passion for products and, so I think what's happening is a lot of people are recognizing that they need all kinds of face coverings right now. They, they right. do need medical grade masks. They do need comfortable masks. They also want bandanas and they also want other soft uh, face coverings. And so I think, you know, again, we're not trying to say this is an alternative to, you know, a, a medical grade mask, but people are using them to, to be respectful face coverings. And I think that's awesome. And, and, it's exciting. And I think people who are watch enthusiasts and are auto enthusiasts can wear something that has a, a fun pop of color, but also speaks to their um, passion. And it becomes a bit of a signifier to those in the know. Yeah. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just a way to represent the things you're passionate about. And, um, you know, so on our um, chrono set, which is our watch designed set, we've got kind of a classic kind of Seiko style illustration of a diver watch on one and kind of a classic chronograph on the other. On the auto set, we've got um, the headlight cluster from a um, Series 3 Land Rover on Sweet. one. And yep. we've got a, Fuch a Fuchs rim on the other. That's my favorite. Yeah. And then on the the um, cam on the Opti set, which is our camera theme set, we've got these cut-ins of the lens on a Pentax K1000 as well as the film advancer. And so these are really cropped in designs that are showing just a piece of a bigger product. And what's cool about 
that story, I think, is that people who are in the know can instantly recognize what that's an homage to. So how much are these bad boys? <laughs> well, you know, and we, we tried really hard to, to price them in a way that we felt supported the value. Um, we, for $40, you get two of these kerchiefs plus the woggle strap. And we think that, you know, based on the competition, it's a really good value. And I think that when you feel them and when you, you know, you know start using them a little bit, they feel high quality. We're really pleased with the quality of the product and they feel like nice and they feel good against your skin. And those yeah. are all big factors when it comes to choosing something that you're going to, you know, have with you all day long. So we think that they're priced pretty, um, pretty well for what, what we're putting together. Were there any restrictions or, or were like minimums ever an issue for you guys? Um, you know, we, we were again, really lucky to benefit a bit from, just a long history of, of producing products through our partner, uh, through my business partner at, at this particular factory. So right. we, 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 we had a nice chunk of our first run and we're, we're chewing through it right now and we're working on um, our, our next purchase. Um, we'll be re-upping a couple of, of the current SKUs and introducing a couple more. And if, if you're, if you're game, I'm happy to announce to your audience what one of our next ones will be. Yeah, no, let's do it. Talk about it. Cool. Cool. So we are going to be doing another automotive set. We're going to be calling it auto Mark two. It's going to be, um, featuring two parts of a car that, uh, I love and I'm, I'm sure you love as well, but, um, we're really going to be focusing in on some, some recognizable pieces of classic GTIs. Oh, sweet. So we'll have the headlight. I was going to say, I have a feeling it's going to be headlight related. <laughs> headlight cluster of a Mark II, you know, sweet. so that's a very iconic. Amazing. Headlight cluster there. And then the steering wheel of a Mark I, Oh, as you know, is a very, very, very iconic 80s, super 80s, amazingly designed steering wheel. Have you decided on colors yet? No, we are working on that right now. We have some ideas we're toying with. Um, this feedback from our audience might be something that influences that as well. But, you know, so we'll, we'll be choosing for each set. We have to choose a color of fabric for each, um, each kerchief plus a alternating color for the marrowed edge. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it'd be great. Like black background, light gray with a uh, graphic and then a red marrowed edge. Oof. I think that would, it'd be perfect. Uh, that that would just be my vote. Duly uh, noted. When uh, so when do you think those will be coming out? If you had to guess, fall. They'll they'll be out in the fall. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, you're a marketing guy, so how are you marketing the product? Sure. Um, you know we are um, using Instagram primarily right now and working with um, the right kinds of retailers. Um, I'm also, I guess I can say also that we're talking to multiple. Um, brands right now about doing collaborations, which is something I got to, I really learned about and got to do a lot at Gear Patrol and launched a couple fun and worked on a few co um, cool collaborations with the Gear Patrol store and different brands. And so that's something I'm, I understand the value of that and the shared kind of um, amplification that comes from, from a, from a cool collab. Yeah. So you guys, uh, what I understand to be pretty much your, your mission statement being dedicated to helping you strike better balance by creating high quality accessories that are stylish yet useful. Can we extrapolate that a bit? And like, what does that mean exactly? So 
you know, for us, um, again, it goes a little bit to, to a few things. Um, Kenny, our, our designer, he, at, at art school, he learned a lot about just that, that massive, you know, responsibility of form and function um, yeah. as part of making a beautiful design. Um, the logo that we use for Contoment, it, it's a, it looks, I guess, like kind of like a cross, but really what it is is a plus sign. In fact, the way I designed the logo was I typed out a plus sign and then put it in Illustrator and, and outlined it and bulked up the, the stroke on it to make it look a little bit more substantial, but it's a plus sign. And that idea of form plus function or style, style plus substance Right. Is, is just a big deal to us. Um, and that led to our tagline, which is stylized substance. Um, when you add those things together, it becomes um, more than just a, a good looking product or a good, highly functional tool cloth. It becomes really the, the combination of that is something else. And I think we're really proud of that, of that feeling that people have been kind of saying that they have when using our product, that it is stylish, but like there's that function that is really there to back up, um, to back up that style. And, you know, I, I think we talk about it as the power of plus, you know, and that is something that just, we talk about it all the time in terms of us needing to plus up what we're doing, but also, you know, that not, not one of us um, in our company could have done this alone. It's just right. not possible. I, I don't have the um, the skill sets of someone who's been manufacturing goods in China for 10 years. And I don't have right. the design skills of someone who has, you know, art, who can do an architectural rendering of, of a cool watch. Um, and, and, and they don't have the contacts that I've developed over my years of marketing. Right. Yeah. And, and so um, I, I learned this lesson back in school, which is when you have to collaborate, don't collaborate with people who duplicate what you do. Collaborate with people who complement what you do. Yeah. And I think absolutely. it's hard because we are gravitated. We gravitate to people who are like us. Right. And so right. it's really hard to find someone who is like you, but is different than you also. Yeah. Well, given that your brand is accessory focused, um, what do you see as being future growth as far as the assortments concerned? Like what do you guys already have another product? Uh, in mind or is it just iterating on uh, what you're doing? That's a great question. Um, and I'll, and I'm going to answer it with a little bit of like a tease and a little bit of like not answering it because I don't want to give stuff away, but I iteration is a big deal to us and we are absolutely going to be not just improving on our product, but launching new versions of it with added functionality. Um, we also, you know, the woggle was initially concepted as a, as a leather, as a leather, piece and we certainly are excited to get to a point where that can be part of the future of the brand as well sure that's awesome um just to sidestep more business talk or, or i guess to sidestep business talk entirely uh and just talk about life in general what was the last public gathering you attended prior to covid oh public gathering I don't know, my, about a week before lockdown, my wife and I went on a double date and we were talking about, in a, in a crowded restaurant, and we were talking about like, is this, you know, is this going to be for reals? Is this happening? And, yeah. and, you know, that we were very grateful that we went on that date. Well, you and I obviously have a ton in common categorically, be it, be it watches, cars, you know, the love of the outdoors and such. 
what would you say is your ideal day off? Oh boy. Um, well, I tell you one thing that we I've been working on is um, planning a trip, a backpacking trip with my son on the Appalachian Trail, on the very trail that me and my business partners grew up going to as kids. You know, we're um, we're definitely we were going to do that in the spring, and that that kind of got a, a wrench thrown in it. So we're going to try right. and try and do it more like in the fall when it's not as hot and sweaty as it is in New York right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're, we're, we're going to, he and I are going to try and do a little bit of fishing and doing some, some lake hopping on the Appalachian trail. Um, Sweet. just, just hanging out along the way. So that would be pretty ideal in terms of, um, a day off or a weekend off or something like that. Yeah. Has COVID been the impetus behind anything that you've grown to love selfishly, like be it, you know, independent? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we have gone on a lot more bike riding that has become, you know, we all had bicycles, but it was just like, okay, let's get these all tuned up. Let's start, let's get, let's get these all tightened and tires or, or tubes replaced. And so we've started cycling as a family a lot. And, you know, that, that ranges from my son who could like power past all of us to my, my youngest who, you know, she's, you know, she's, we have to kind of hang out with her and help her along the way. But that, but cycling has become something that we've started doing pretty much on an every other day basis nowadays. And, and that's been a ton of fun. Um, I listened to your podcast with uh, the creator of Linus. That was like very, uh, it's very interesting that the bike shop in our town has a line out the door every single day. And I, and I think there is yeah. something exciting happening that's very real. And I hope does not change after this crisis um, is, is, is lessened, but that people do consider something other than a car to do that two mile radius sort of thing. And that's what we've been doing. And it's so funny because as a car guy, I, I, I purposely have to get out and like drive my car every once in a while, just because I want that feeling or I need that, um, you know, I, I need to make sure that it's running well and stuff like that. Um, so that's like more of like a choice. It's not a necessity. And I, don't, I don't even touch it if I don't have to or don't want to. So that's a really unique change that I think and I hope becomes just kind of part of our our, our society moving forward. Yeah, totally. So what's uh, you mentioned the car? What what's in the garage? <laughs> All right. So here's what happens when you get four kids. All right. <laughs> it, it's something large. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was a car guy. I've been a car guy my whole life. My, my, the first car that I bought in college was a 75 cherry red 2002. And um, when, when our design firm back in the day took off, I was able to find um, a 1999 M coupe, which super impractical and, <laughs> amazing to drive super fun and you know and every single stoplight the guy next to you is rubbing his engine at you every time like it's a little annoying honestly and then and then i started driving you know mini coopers i actually love probably the most fun cars i think i've owned um but you know once you get into multiple kids one of those cars becomes quickly becomes a minivan and i'm a huge believer in the minivan love the minivan we have we rock the minivan hard um but that other car you know, it can be a fun car for only f- so long because then when your oldest becomes able and willing to drive, um, you know, and, and my wife's just like, hey, um, this next car, you, you got to get something that, that's going to be easier and safer for her to drive. 
you know, I, like I said, I don't drive that car very often. And I, at the time, um, I, I had an E46 wagon with a stick, which is an awesome, fun car to have. You yeah. can throw two bikes on the top, two, two little bikes in the back. And, and um, you know, just they're kind of rare with a stick. But the thing was kind of just dying on me a little bit. Uh-huh. And my wife's just like, can we get a car that is an automatic? I was at my parents' house and my dad and I were both on like cars.com or something, just looking for something used that it was going to be safe and going to be reliable and mm-hmm. something also fun to drive. And it was so interesting because I was looking at BMWs and I noticed that every single three series that was less than a hundred thousand miles was well over 10 grand. And, and anything that was less than 10 grand was way over a hundred thousand miles, you know? Great. And so we're sitting there and my dad just goes, and, and he goes, have you ever looked at X3s? And I'm like, no, I, no, I, no, I wouldn't. And he's like, you should look real quick. And, and we were sort of looking at like kind of Gen 1 X3s that have that kind of boxy sort of look to it. And it was, it's kind of a hidden secret that I'm excited to tell you and your audience about. But like they sold a bajillion of those cars. And they sold the vast majority of them on leases. There are so many on the used market right now that have artificially low miles. So I, at that point, I was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm seeing like really, really, really beautifully cars in massively good condition, crazy low miles. And there's so many of them, the prices, you know, (laughs) there's plenty of supply. So the prices are so low. It was to the point where I was just like, what, what color? should I get right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it was a, it was a car that when it launched, I worked on the, the, the flash microsite that launched that vehicle. So I have this kind of tie back to when it, when it launched. What, uh, what kind of bucket list adventures are on, are on the list? Yep. So my wife, she grew up um, going to Yosemite every summer. She went to Yosemite climbing school. We lived, when we lived in Utah, our, our, goal and we, we we did it every year was three national parks every summer um and so we have a map on our mantle that has every single national park on it and every time we go to one we can put a little sticker on it and so we're we're you know for us and we in terms of let's just say domestic adventure it's really hitting the national parks whenever we can absolutely what's your favorite car movie my favorite car movie, I'm going to go ahead and say Ronin. Uh, yes, the Audi S8 with NOS. <laughs> yes, 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 the S8. And then also the kind of like the 5 Series with the M trim on it. Um, yeah, like Ronin is something that, you know, we just barely showed that to my 14-year-old son for the first time. And to watch that with him, because it's a weird movie. It's a movie that feels much older than when it was actually shot. It feels like a like a more like a 70s style spy flick even though it was filmed and released in the late 90s but it's got just that classic timeless kind of spy craft vibe to it plus these amazing car chases you know um you know john frankenheimer shot that movie and you know he's an amazing classic director but he in that film really innovated the idea of dropping the camera down right in front of the grill front of the grill of those cars as they're hauling down 
those little alleyways and it just yeah. gives that amazing sensation of speed and just that really he understood how to where to put a lens in order to capture just why cars are cool that was one of my favorite movies actually i think that, that came up in my conversation with scotto actually because we were talking about uh, the a8 for him um, you are wearing a Baltic watch currently. I know you're a Seiko guy as well, as am I. Yep. What is it about these watches, man? Like, why do we love these things so much? Well, it's interesting, you know, for me, living out West and commuting into work every day by car, like yeah. that car was this mechanical, like manifestation of what brand I wanted to put out there what, what I'm trying to say right so I always thought of my car as like an extension of myself moving for me moving to New York um, I mean and, and I've always had a watch on my wrist ever since like third grade and, and have cared what watches on my wrist but moving to New York and then all of a sudden taking the train into Manhattan every day and not being in a car every single day it was, it was, it was hard. It was a jarring thing to all of a sudden, like, what is, what are these signifiers that I want to have associated with me? And what do I want to keep with me every day? That makes me feel like I am who I am. Right. Um, I started caring a lot more about the watch on my wrist and, and, and it, you know, for me, it's not just, you know, what I don't, the, the watch is um, a part of my whole ensemble. It's just like, I don't wear the same watch every single day. I definitely wear a different watch every day. And it very much depends on what I'm choosing to, to wear that day. Um, I care deeply for that, that what that um, pairing actually says. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, you know, when I do take and post a watch, a wrist shot on Instagram. I, I'm trying to actually angle the camera so that you can see the rest of the context. I think, I think a watch out of context is, is cool and it's pretty, but like when it's paired with the right, you know, the right kind of outfit or the right shoes, I think it, it says so much more and you can, you know, it's more fun too. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, obviously Bradley at Autodromo is killing it, you know, from that perspective, you know, being able to drive just by looking at your wrist, <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. In fact, that's, that's, that was his stuff was kind of my end point into kind of watch enthusiasm. I um, came across Autodromo back when I lived in Salt Lake. I was writing for a small um, auto blog called Motoring Conbrio, which was a fun little enthusiast blog several years ago. And they were, I think they were the, maybe their first advertising partner. And so I saw Autodromo watches on this little blog and I started following them and, and you know, re reached out and got to know Bradley, man, maybe six years ago. And that led me to, you know, reading Worn and Wound, which led me to reading Hodinkee and um, Gear Patrol and all these other places that, that cover watches. But he, Autodromo was a big gateway for me into kind of the watch enthusiast culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's the real deal for sure. What, um, why is the Land Rover Defender so worthy of its like obsessive praise. Hmm. It's interesting. So when I was a kid growing up, my dad loved the movie, the gods must be crazy. And this is a South African film. It takes place in Africa. It's, it's a comedy. It's, it's hysterical and it heavily features a series one Land Rover, you know, 88 wheelbase. But so I, you know, at a young age, I just fell in love with, Land Rovers, and I love that the, those pieces of it that really are so iconic, um, yeah. like the headlight cluster or the 
the gnarly tire on the bonnet. So yeah, I think that that design language just connotates or denotates um, adventure. It just does. It, you can't draw a different thing that says adventure more than that. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on the new Bronco? You know, I think it's awesome. I um, I think that they struck the balance between retro design design language and that modern interpretation. It, it it's something that you know when the the new Defender came out last year, I I was not a hater. I was like, this is cool. This is cool. You know, they they did a good job of making a cool looking vehicle. It did not ring defender to me it rang land rover modern land rover yes. which is cool which i like i think they're awesome um but when you see um this this bronco it definitely you know you can squint and see an old bronco and that's yeah. the squint test you know the squint test is you can't do that with the new land rover and the same the new defender the way you can with the new bronco um i had a good buddy um that had a an, a Bronco in high school and the second you know the second that that came out you know we were texting each other and and he just was blown away by it so you know i think that for people who are have been owners and enthusiasts it's doing a great job of speaking to again to that iconography and that language that resonates with them so a squint test is always a good thing to to try in those in those scenarios yeah i think they nailed it i think they're trumping the competition for sure and it seems unbelievably capable um i know they've got like seven different trim levels or whatever it is but but uh but you know more power to them i guess um do you have a grail watch and or grail car oh wow yeah um i don't know i I think watch wise, I, I just love, like it's cliche, but I love a Speedmaster. I could see myself wanting to have a Speedmaster in my collection one day. In terms of cars, like I would love a 1970-ish Land Rover Series 2A in pale green, sure. Not specific at all. <laughs> think about it frequently. Um, would have a cream hard top with matching cream steelies and, you know, and uh, and the one on the on the bonnet. Um, I also love BMWs, as you've heard. And for me, I'm 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 infatuated with wagons. So think of like a Denon B3 spec, you know, wagon, modern, brand new. That's awesome. Well, listen, man. I again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or promote? Um, well, no. I mean, you can follow. Contonement on Instagram. We are at Contonement Co. And our website is Contonement.co. Um, you can follow me if you're interested on Instagram. I'm at Kyality. So K-Y-A-L-I-T-Y. Um, that's a long story about how that name came around. Is that Kyle's reality? Or do you want me to go there? This is a this is a this is your time, Kyle. Why don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Unless you don't want to tell. Is it embarrassing? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a cool story. Cool. I uh, used to work with a photographer by the name of Skylar Nielsen, super talented photographer who has a, a very strong stutter and something that he actually is extremely endearing about him. And the stutter is really interesting because it's particularly strong when he tries to say someone's name. Oh. And so... 
what he does as a new as a way to kind of sidestep that is he gives people nicknames and for some reason when he gives someone a nickname it doesn't he didn't stutter oh interesting so i became not kyle but kyality one of my co-workers became who was peter became pedrosity but whenever he just would make a fun nickname up for somebody all of a sudden he wouldn't stutter when saying that person's name yeah i wonder what the psychology is behind that or like what kind of like trigger mechanism yeah it's really interesting so i just loved when he called me kyality so when you know when things like twitter came around and you know blogs and stuff like that i just adopted that nickname that he had given me as my nickname on pretty much everything so if you go looking for kyality it's like it's likely me that's awesome that's good seo <laughs> we'll see <laughs> Well, listen, man, thank you so much. Um, it's great to see you, talk to you, and obviously what's been a very strange time. And uh, yeah, congrats on all the the release and launch of, of Contonement, man. That's super exciting. Thank you so much. Keep up what you're doing. You know, we all love your podcast, so we really, really appreciate what you're doing, man. Oh, thanks so much. Well, cool. Well, let's chat soon. Cool. Okay. This wraps up another episode of the Standard Age podcast. Big thanks, as always, goes to Clear Audio for their use of their headphones, as well as the Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, don't forget to rate and review the show. Stay tuned in two weeks' time for another episode. Bye, everyone.